Well, back in the uh, summer of 1998, I had a life-changing conversation. I call it that because prior to the conversation, I'd been struggling with a major decision. Lisa and I had only been married for a short time, and I was partner in a small business, and things were going quite well for us. But there was this ongoing issue that I needed to respond to, and it was a calling on my life to go into ministry. Now, I want you to understand, God had called me when I was in high school, and as a young man, I ran away from that call as fast as I could. Because due to my insecurities and my belief that I didn't have what it took to be a minister, I went off the deep end and I completely walked away from God and my life became an enormous mess. I was trapped in an addiction that I couldn't break free from and I had degenerated to a point where I really couldn't recognize the guy that I had become. Well, God was and is faithful. And he never quits pursuing us, folks. He, he never does. And eventually, as I call them, those hounds of heaven, they got a hold of me. And I rededicated my life to Jesus. He brought me deliverance from the stronghold that was in my life. And I began to serve him and get involved in a variety of ways in ministry. And that's when I met this beautiful young lady sitting in the front row, my wife, Lisa. And this life-changing conversation that I'm talking about was with her. Because it was right at that time when God's call for me to go into the ministry had become stronger than ever. In fact, I would go as far as to say that in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit, it was relentless. But the problem was for me that our life was going so good. Things were just right. Uh, I was building a future for our family. And even though I was in a much better place to confidently say yes to the Lord and to pursue that calling into ministry, there was still all of those what ifs that naturally come into your mind. I struggled with losing the benefits and the perks of working for myself as a business owner. And I struggled with the sacrifices that I knew we as a family would have to make in order for this to happen. What I'm trying to say to you is that we were in a great place and I wasn't sure that I wanted to give it all up to become a pastor. So I wrestled with this decision and I kept it from Lisa as long as I possibly could because I, I feared how she might respond to the whole idea. I mean, after all, she didn't marry a pastor. She married a small business owner and, uh, so what I did is what all of us do. I avoided the conversation altogether. But God has a keen sense of timing, if you haven't noticed. And while we were on vacation one day, attending a church that my sister attends, that morning service, God did something amazing. And I won't go into details because quite honestly, you wouldn't believe the details that I told you. But apparently, through what happened, Lisa could see that I was dealing with something very heavily and that God had spoken to me at that service. And so back at the hotel, she asked me, what is going on with you anyway? <laughs> and that opened the floodgates of, of every emotion and every fear that I had. And I explained to her about the calling on my life. And in the shortest of moments, I discovered that all of my fears were unfounded. Because once I spilled my guts and I told Lisa everything, she very calmly and quietly said, as only Lisa can, well, if God is calling you, David, then you better respond and you better do it now. Amen. Needless to say, I'll never forget that conversation because my life, our life has never been the same. I served just shy of 12 years at the largest Assembly of God church in the nation as an associate pastor for Tommy Barnett. And then a church in Red Bluff, California decided that they wanted to give me an opportunity to be their senior pastor. And the, and these years have literally flown by. And it makes sense because as they say, time flies when you're having fun, right? Well, I'm not just having fun 
but I've experienced an incredible depth of fulfillment in what I do, and I can't imagine what my life would have looked like had I not surrendered to God's call. But here's my point. I would have never acted on that call from God if it weren't for that life-changing conversation that I had with my wife, Lisa. So I'm curious this morning, can you think of a similar life-changing conversation of your own? Perhaps it was when you talked to that person who led you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe you had a talk with a, a friend or, or a mentor who helped you to zero in on the career or that, that good work that God had prepared you in advance to do. Perhaps the conversation that comes to mind was a job interview that relocated you to this area that you now call home and where your children are now being raised. Maybe you were bound by fear to make a decision on something very important, but then you had a conversation with someone who you greatly respected and their words of encouragement helped you to make the decision that you knew you needed to make, but you just needed that little extra nudge in order to do it. Or perhaps you're thinking about a conversation that maybe you had with your spouse that led into the two of you becoming married. But do you know what I'm talking about? Can anybody think of a life-changing conversation that you've had? The reason I ask that and the reason that I bring it up is because as we continue in our sermon series titled, I Promise, where we are reestablishing our belief and our trust in God to do what he says he will do and where we are looking at areas where he clearly makes promises to us, today we're going to look at his promise for a future. And in our text for today is one of these life-changing conversations involving a man named Nicodemus. And the one thing that made his conversation so special is that it wasn't with a, a mere human being he wasn't talking to some guy on the street. Nicodemus was having a conversation with Jesus himself, God who had come in the flesh. So I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, turn to John chapter three, and I want you to follow along as I read verses one through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or it will be up on the screens, and you can follow along with us uh, as we go along. John chapter three, be reading verse 1 through 17, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. The scriptures say, now there was a Pharisee, <clears throat> a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one whom, who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Now, before we look at depth into this life-changing conversation, let's add a little bit of a, a background to our study this morning by first explaining who exactly is this man named Nicodemus. Well, as you can see in verse one, the first thing John tells us is that he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were a select group of, of people, men in the Jewish nation, who took the law of God very, very seriously. And the reason I say select group, because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees never numbered more than 6,000. And each Pharisee took a solemn vow before three witnesses that they would devote every moment of their life to obeying the Ten Commandments. And these commandment-loving guys, they formed the middle class of their day. They controlled the synagogues. They were kind of like the conservatives of the first century Judaism. And I say this because even though they tended toward legalism, they loved God's law and they emphasized righteous living. Now, of course, they had their flaws. As I said, they were law lovers, but sadly, they were severely lacking any kind of grace. And this is why in the scriptures, we see that they were constant critics of Jesus. This is why whenever you and I hear the word Pharisee, we immediately think those were the bad guys, don't we? But they weren't all bad. Some of the Pharisees were good Pharisees, like Gamaliel, the one who taught Paul, formerly Saul, now the Apostle Paul, and who defended Peter even in Acts chapter 5. And of course, we have this Nicodemus, who apparently wasn't alone because when he came to Jesus, he said, we know you are a teacher come from God. So Nicodemus was one of the good Pharisees who possessed their virtues, but I don't think all of their vices that some of these guys had. He was basically a very godly man who believed the scriptures, but John tells us a little bit more about Nicodemus. Verse one tells us also that he was a member of the ruling council. This meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a special group of Pharisees. Think of them as the Jewish Senate, the select of the select. We also know that Nicodemus was a very wealthy individual. In John 19.39, we read that he was the one who brought about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, aloes to, event, or excuse me, to anoint and embalm Jesus' body after his crucifixion. Only a very rich person could have afforded to do that. And by the way, Nicodemus appears two other times in John's gospel. Once at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7, where he defends Jesus before the rest of the Sanhedrin by saying in John 7:51, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And then Nicodemus also appears at Jesus' tomb. And I think that this speaks very highly of him that he would support Jesus in this way because even Jesus' own disciples had fled at that moment. His action on that first Good Friday shows us that he was a brave man with, a great, with great integrity. In short, I think you and I would have liked Nicodemus because he was a cultured, intelligent man of high moral character. Let me put it this way. Nicodemus was as close to being a good person as one could ever hope to be. But with all of these pluses, there was something missing in his life. There was this God-shaped hole that I often talk about in Nicodemus's heart. And that's why he came to Jesus in the first place. You see, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his position, in spite of his education, he still hungered for more. He longed for a vital, personal relationship and experience with the living God whose scriptures he knew so well. Nicodemus wanted the assurance of, of citizenship in the kingdom of God. And he was not unlike people in our day 
I'm talking about good, moral people who have everything this world has to offer, but who still find themselves wanting. You see, whether we acknowledge it or not, we have this inborn yearning for fellowship with God. But sadly, it's our sin that gets in our way. And deep inside, I think each one of us instinctively knows that. There was a gathering that took place over 40 years ago that Time Magazine described as the most holy day in all of history. Perhaps the largest religious event that ever took place where 10 million people in India gathered at one time for a religious observance. The Nirvana sect of Hinduism believed that on that particular day, January 26, 1977, there was a configuration of the sun and the moon and the stars, and they were all locked into place, they said, just like the day of creation. And this was something that this uh, Hindu sect believed made this the most holy day that had ever happened. And so they gathered the poorest and the most humble from little villages all over that nation making the journey to the banks of the Ganges River. As I said, 10 million people came that one day. But get this, that was only part of 50 million that eventually came throughout that week but they came 10 million at a time. At exactly the same moment, at 2.30 a.m., they started walking into the chilly waters of that river. And all those pilgrims then they folded their arms and they faced eastward and began to pray and immerse themselves in the muddy waters of the Ganges River. And they did this to wash away their sins. They believed that, that somehow, this act of piety and devotion could get rid of their sins and therefore they could find acceptance and forgiveness from their creator. Well, as I inferred, this reminds me that all people are like Nicodemus in that they all have an instinctive knowledge of their own sin and it is sin that blocks them from fellowship with the God who they so desperately need. So Nicodemus, this hungry-hearted man, he came to speak with Jesus. And I want you to note something and look at verse one and tell me, what is the very first word in that scripture? It's the word now. Or maybe your Bible translation starts with the word but. Either way, these are two very important words because they tell us something significant about Nicodemus. You see, the words now and but they are known as disjuncted conjunctions. Listen up, because if you're ever on the, the, the show, you're, are you smarter than a fifth grader? You're going to need to know this. <laughs> a disjuncted conjunction is used to highlight a contrast of ideas between that which went before and that which comes after. So I want, you to look at the, I want you to look at that which went before, and I'm talking about John chapter two, verses 23 and 25, where it says this. Now, there's that word. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he, Jesus, was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. In other words, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that these people were only excited by his miracles. They, he knew that they were not yet ready to trust him. He knew that as soon as the miracle stopped, they would in essence change churches. They'd quit following him when the going got tough. And then in John 3, 1, that we read previously, you'll see a disjuncted, a disjuncted conjunction, that's hard to say, when John writes this. Now, there's that word again, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. In other words, John was saying Nicodemus was different than all those other guys. He was attracted, yes, by Jesus' miracles, but he was a sincere seeker. Nicodemus wasn't just interested in the miracles, but the one who was behind 
all of the miracles. And he knew only God could do the kind of things that Jesus did. And so Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus in the hopes that he could satisfy this hunger, this thirst that he had for God. And Jesus could see the sincerity in Nicodemus's heart. And so he agreed to this life-changing conversation. And John tells us that this encounter took place at night. And, and there are all kinds of theories that have been presented as to why. Some have said that Nicodemus came at night in order to spy on Jesus. Others say he came in the cover of the night to avoid being seen by his peers. But I'll tell you why I think Nicodemus came, because it was one of the few moments of his day where he actually had time for himself. Like most of us, Nicodemus and Jesus both had busy, nonstop schedules. So nighttime was probably the only time that he could come and have a frank discussion without interruption, and Nicodemus might be able to get some of his questions answered. But let's get on to the conversation because you'll notice that Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi. And in doing so, he offers Jesus a great deal of respect. The, the, this particular Pharisee, he broke ranks with his critical peers when he acknowledged Jesus as a teacher in spite of the fact that he lacked earthly credentials. Listen, there are people out there in this congregation that can probably preach better than I ever dreamed of, and they don't have any credentials, but they know the word of God. And that's what Jesus was. He didn't go to school. He didn't, get, he didn't take classes. The word of, he was the word of God. He knew it, but they didn't want to acknowledge him because he didn't have any credentials. Look at the, first, the full statement in verse two. Nicodemus says this, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And notice there's no question mark at the end of that sentence. This statement shows that, that, that Nicodemus wasn't asking if that was true. Nicodemus was making a simple statement of truth. And since, as I said earlier, Jesus knew that Nicodemus had a questioning heart, but it was combined it combined with his statement that he couldn't do these miracles if it wasn't from God, well, then Jesus knew more than ever that this particular Pharisee, this expert, so-called expert in God's law, yearned to understand how he could move from just knowing about God to having a personal relationship with him and knowing God. He knew that, that Nicodemus was a man of deep religious hunger combined with profound spiritual blindness. So in response to his statement, Jesus tells him two things. And understand, these two things were not just meant for Nicodemus. They were meant for all mankind. They are things that, that you and I must know if we want to know God personally and become a part of his work in this world today. First, he said that salvation is found in spiritual birth rather than physical birth. Look again at verses three and four. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And then look at verses five and six. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, it's not your physical birth that gets you into heaven. Flesh only gives birth to flesh. And Nicodemus, he really needed to hear this because like most Jews of his day, he had put his confidence in his flesh. He thought that since he was born, of Jewish lineage, he was already in the kingdom of God. Now, don't get me wrong, he would have been very familiar of this concept of new birth. But he thought, like we discussed in the book of Acts, that this requirement only applied to Gentiles who converted to Judaism first before they became a Christian and not him. After all, he had been born once from the water in a Jewish womb. And this automatically made him one of God's chosen people 
Plus, he was more than just your typical everyday Jew. He was a Pharisee. And on top of that, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he would have thought that if anyone had an automatic end to God's kingdom, that it would have been him. But Jesus sets him straight on his erroneous thinking. And at the same time, he explains a key element to our future with God. Jesus was saying, no, Nicodemus, physical birth doesn't do it. You need another birth. You need a spiritual birth. To know God, you must be born of God. Now, to fully understand that phrase, born again, we need to go back to the Greek because there are two words that can be translated as again in the Greek. One word is palin, and that refers to a, a simple repetition of an act. Another Greek word for again is the one that John uses here. In the Greek, it was the word anothen. Another refers to much more than a simple repetition of an action. It literally means again from above. So Jesus was saying Nicodemus needed a new birth that was supernatural, one that had its origins in God himself. And only then could he come to know God and to become a part of what God was doing in this world. Now, lest we get too critical on old Nicodemus, we must admit that many people, even in our day, have the same basic faulty assumptions as Nicodemus did. There are tons of people who still think being a Christian has something to do with their physical birth. They think that they have the same sort of in like Nicodemus was banking on. Let me put it this way. Many believers believe the word Christian is more of an adjective than it is a noun. They think that they are bound for heaven because they were born into a Christian nation or a Christian home or through Christian parents. And of course, they are completely wrong. A Christian is someone who has been born again by believing in Jesus, repenting of their sin, asking Jesus to forgive them of their sin and come into their heart and life as Lord and Savior. That coming in, that is the new birth that Jesus is talking about here. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes inside of us and rebirths us. That's what being born of the Spirit means. Then, as we submit our lives to his will, he begins to make us into new, more Christ-like people. And if you're a Christian and you've made that decision, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Because when we make that all-important decision, and it is a decision, it is a choice, it is an action of your will and purpose, make that decision to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we gain a new power and we gain a new presence in our lives. We are changed in such a way where it can only be described as a rebirth or a recreation. We are, yes, forgiven of our past, but then we are armed by the Spirit of God for the future. So let's get back to our Greek word lesson. Being born again is an another thing and not a palin thing, if you can even remember what I said earlier about those two words. It's a birth from above that empowers us to live the way that God wants us to live. Here's an illustration. It might be a bad one, but go with me on this. It's the best thing I could come up with. Suppose I wanted to learn to play that wonderful and, and very popular Christian song, I Can Only Imagine. Most of you have heard that song. It's a beautiful so song. Well, if I were to get the sheet music and I were to try to peck out the melody on my own, that would be Palin. I would simply be playing Bart Millard's song from Mercy Me again. But if I were to play that song in the another sense, then I would have to have Bart Miller actually inside of me and play it. I'd have to be born again, this time with Bart playing his own song through me. Now I know that sounds strange, and as I said, I'm just trying to help you to understand this, but honestly, new birth can be strange. It's not easily understood. It's an unexplainable, wonderful thing of God coming inside of us and living through us. 
And it's the new birth that, that leads us from just knowing about God, who he is. Yeah, we've, we've read about him our entire life, to knowing God on a personal level and watching him transform our lives and be the men and women of God that he, he not only desires, but really needs us to be. So Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, your physical birth is not enough. So forget about all that. You need to be born again from above. You need to be brought to life by the Spirit of God. In short, Nicodemus would have to come to the same understanding that another Pharisee came to, a Pharisee named Paul, who became the Apostle Paul. See, Paul realized that his assumptions about his physical birth that he had carried most of his life were totally wrong. Listen to his words in Philippians 3, 3 through 9, where he writes this. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I have myself reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on law, faultless. He's reading off all these things he banked on before that he thought made him God's man. Verse seven says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul learned that his physical birth was worthless when it came to his relationship with God. Only his rebirth, his, his spiritual birth, gave him the fellowship with God that he longed for. So, so Nicodemus had to come to this same conclusion. And by the way, the phrase born another or rebirth, it runs throughout the New Testament. In 1 Peter 1.13, it speaks of God who has begotten or birthed us into a living hope. In 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, it says that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. In James 1, 8, it speaks of God begetting or birthing us with the word of truth. In Titus 3, 5, it speaks of the washing of regeneration of rebirth. In, in Romans 6, 1 through 22, it speaks of the Christian dying with Christ and rising to new life or new birth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 makes clear, if anyone is in Christ, it is, as he is, it is if he has been created all over again. So all over the New Testament is this truth of rebirth or recreation from God above. Well, Nicodemus heard all this, but his logical mind just couldn't seem to grasp it. Warren Wiersbe writes this, Nicodemus came at night, and he was still in the dark. So this hungry-hearted Pharisee said, Jesus, I just don't understand. How can this be? And in response, our Lord gave both Nicodemus and you and I something that we need to understand in order for us to satisfy our hunger to really know God. He said that salvation is something we explain as much as it is something that we experience. Excuse me, salvation is not something we explain as much as it is something that we experience. Jesus said that coming to know God personally is not so much logic and reasoning as it is a, a simple step of faith. And I think Jesus must have lovingly chuckled as he spoke these words to Nicodemus in verses five through eight. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. 
You should not be surprised at, at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Please allow me to paraphrase what he is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you are a wise man, but even you know that there are things in this life that we don't have to explain in order to experience them. For example, he says, can you explain this breeze that's moving through those trees as I'm talking? Where does it come from? And where's it going? It touches your cheek, it, it rustles your robe, but you cannot explain it or understand it. But that does not keep you from experiencing it. It's the same way, he says, with the new birth, Nicodemus. You don't have to explain it in order to experience it. This reminds me of a story of a Christian farmer witnessing to his unsaved neighbor. The neighbor said, I don't believe in this new birth. I don't believe anything that I can't reason in my mind. And the Christian farmer wisely replied, he said, well, look around my barnyard. He said, you can see that I have geese and I have sheep and I have pigs and I have cows on this farm. Well, they all eat grain, but on the geese, it comes out as feathers and on the sheep, it comes out as wool. And on the hogs, it comes out as bristles. And on the cows, it comes out as hair. Can you please explain that to me? The neighbor replied, no, I, I, I can't understand it. But I guess I'll have to believe it because I know it's true. Well, that's exactly the same way it is with God. We don't reason our way into a relationship with him. We do not become a child of God by the process of explaining to him what we believe or don't believe, what we understand or don't understand. We simply take a leap of faith, believing that God is and that he is real and that he has the power to touch and change and transform our lives. On this side of eternity, we can't explain how this happens, but by faith we act on what God's word says. And when we do, something happens that transforms us. The great 20th century evangelist, Harry Ironside, was once challenged by an agnostic man to have a public de debate on the claims of Christian faith. Ironside agreed to the debate on one condition. He said the agnostic would have to bring with him an alcoholic who had turned to the agnostic philosophy and then found the power to beat his addiction or to bring a career criminal that had read about the agnostic way of thinking and embraced it and turned his life completely around from the wasted living that he had had before. And Iron, Ironside said to him, as for my part, I'm going to bring to the debate 100 people from similar backgrounds, people who had been born again by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who through their new birth from above found the power to turn from their sins and to be delivered from their strongholds. Sure enough, the agnostic refused the invitation and said, I won't be meeting with you. And I think that was a wise decision on his part because only the new birth that Jesus offers can truly change us. And this is not just a promise, folks. This is a reality that I've seen happen over and over and over again. And you wanna see it, go to CR on Friday night and you'll find a ton of people whose lives have been transformed. Always giving you guys commercials, you owe me. But you know what, I told you this is God's promise. And this isn't just a promise, folks. This is a reality. It's a reality. There is a promised future from God. And they acted on faith and they received what was promised to them. Do you know someone who has experienced that life change that, that faith in Jesus Christ makes possible? Do you know someone who has been born again? How about you? If you have, give me an amen. 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 Well, at this point in their conversation, Nicodemus did not understand even after Jesus' very clear illustration about the wind. 
He's either stubborn or he's not as smart as maybe we thought he was. I'm not sure. So Jesus went on to pull from the Hebrew scriptures and to draw an analogy from them. I'm referring to something that would have been very, very uh, not, uh, uh, familiar, excuse me, I'm pulling for the word, familiar to Nicodemus and his Pharisee-trained mind. And it came from an incident in Jewish history in, that we can find in our Bibles in Numbers chapter 21, when God's chosen people were in the desert and they were on their way to the promised land, but all the way... They were complaining about the food and the water and they were speaking against God and they were speaking against Moses. They regretted that they had ever left Egypt and they even asked Moses, get this, did you bring us out here in order for us to die in the wilderness? They were a fickle bunch of people. So to bring them back to their sense of dependency upon him, God punished them by sending a plague of venomous snakes. And as a result, the people repented and cried for mercy. Then God instructed Moses to make an image of a serpent and hold it up in the center of the camp. And he said, whoever had been bitten and looked upon the image of that serpent would be healed and would live. Now God didn't explain how looking at that bronze serpent would cleanse their blood of the snake's venomous poison. He didn't draw illustrations for them uh, on how their gaze would repair any damage that had been done to their physical bodies. He just asked them to have the faith necessary to believe that looking at it would do the trick, and it did. So look at verses 14 and 16, where our Lord says this, "'Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's promise, not just to Nicodemus, but to all mankind. Whoever in faith looks to Jesus will be saved and will be reborn What an incredible promise for our bright future. We'll all have this God-shaped hole filled by God himself as he comes into our heart and as he comes into our life. And then when we die a physical death, we will spend eternity in God's presence. Scott, will you come forward, everyone? Please stand to your feet. So as I come to the end of this service, I would like to ask you, is God trying to have a life-changing conversation with you? Maybe he's already had it. And you're kind of stuffing it like I did. You're ignoring it. You're avoiding it. Perhaps God is saying to the Christian here this morning, you need to deepen your relationship with me. It's gotten kind of superficial. You need to spend more time in my word. You need to spend more time seeking me in your private time. You aren't experiencing the abundant life that I promised you because you're not allowing me to live fully through you. God may be telling some of you need to come down to this this altar this morning to release unforgiveness that you're carrying against someone. And it's that unforgiveness that is tearing you apart. It's the unforgiveness that, that makes you respond in ways that you really don't want to respond. And and, and it's hurting you. It's not hurting the person that you haven't forgiven. Maybe God is calling you to work in his kingdom through your local church. And you've been hesitant because you have all kinds of fears of, of the unknown. And you worry that you don't have the time. A big one is that you're not spiritually ready. I don't feel like I'm, I'm spiritually there yet, Pastor David. Well, have a life-changing conversation with the Lord this morning because I will assure you, just like the conversation he had with me, is that you do have what it takes. You have exactly what it takes to whatever it is that he is leaning you to get involved in. Most importantly, there may be people here this morning and you've never received salvation. You've never come to know Jesus on a personal level. You know who he is, you've read about him, you sit in church perhaps, but you've never made that commitment. Like Nicodemus, you know him, but you want to know more. You wanna be in a redemptive relationship with him. Well, come down to this altar. 
and have the most important and essential conversation that you've ever had in your life. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Ask him, offer him lordship over your life. The Bible says if you do, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And get this, you will become a new creation. You get a fresh start. Get the opportunity to wipe the slate clean and say, God, now use me. What is it you would have me do? And you listen intently to his direction and his voice. And you come to church and you get involved in our discipleship classes and you grow by reading the word of God and having people mentor you and help you in your Christian faith. I wanna open this altar this morning to anyone for anything. I hate to limit it to you know the message because I know every day when you come here, you have burdens. You have things you're carrying around that you need to dump and you need to leave at the, at the foot of the cross. The option is you can leave here carrying it with you and feel the same way, or you can dump it, leave it in God's hands and trust and believe in his promises, that he is true to his promises. But whatever it is this morning, whether it's one of the things that I mentioned or something totally different, before we close this service, while the worship team sings, I wanna open this altar, come down and pray. We'll come and the pastors will lay hands on you and pray for you. And when that's done, we will then close this service in prayer. If you don't come down here, and you have nothing to pray about. I would ask that you would pray for those who are kneeling, who have a need and wanna have a, a most important conversation with the Lord this morning. Scott.
amazing grace. All those at the altar are still praying. They can stay here as long as they'd like. I'd like to go ahead and close this service in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Most importantly, we thank you for your promises. God, my prayer for my church family is that we would do like that old hymn says, we would be standing on the promises of God, that we would not falter, we would not fear, that we would not doubt, but we would know that you hold us securely in your hand. Those of us who are in a redemptive relationship with you, those who, who your blood has, has cleansed, Father, your promises are real. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anything that we do that gets in the way of that, remove it from us. Father, give us the ability and the desire to want to seek you in greater ways, to allow you to do greater things in and through us. Let us not be afraid of those greater things, but let us embrace them and understand that transformation occurs. And when it does, it's, so, it's for the sole purpose of stepping out and being faithful to you in service. And so God, I pray that that would be the cry of all of our hearts, that we would trust in you, that we would believe in you, and we would allow you to use us as you make good on your promises to us. So I thank you, Lord, for your presence. I thank you for the message in tongues that we received at the end of this service. I thank you for the lives that have been challenged this morning. And I pray as we go our separate ways today, that the same spirit we've been talking about all morning long would go with us, guiding and direct our steps, our past, the places we go, the things we do, conversations that we have, those conversations would be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. And that we would walk through our time on this earth as bright lights, shining your light of love and victory on darkness in this place, in this world that we live in. And that we would shine so brightly that people would understand that there's something different about us and we would be given the opportunity to share the goodness of God with them. Father, I pray as I always do, give us an opportunity this week. Bring someone into our path that we can share Jesus with. And I also pray, God, between now and next week when we gather together again, that you would keep us safe from sickness and disease. You would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can gather together wholly as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we leave here today, Father, my prayer is that we would go in your love and that love would be seen, it would be sensed, it would be experienced by those around us. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.